Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Present Company. I'm your host, Krista Smith. Over the past few months, I've had the pleasure of sitting down separately with Maggie Gyllenhaal and a few of the other actors behind her feature directorial debut, The Lost Daughter. Today, we are taking a deep dive into those conversations to bring together the perspectives and experiences of the people who brought this film to life. You'll be hearing from writer and director Maggie Gyllenhaal, as well as Olivia Coleman, who plays Leda, Dakota Johnson, who plays Nina, and Ed Harris, who plays Lyle. As a highly accomplished actor who has been in the business for nearly three decades, it's exciting to see Maggie step behind the camera. At the age of 15, she made her acting debut in her father's 1992 film, Waterland. However, her breakout didn't come until 2002, when she took on the daring title role in Secretary, opposite James Spader. Over the years, Maggie has appeared in both independent and studio films, including Sherry Baby, Stranger Than Fiction, The Dark Knight, and Crazy Heart, for which she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She first dipped her toes into the world of directing just this past year when she directed a short film for Homemade, Netflix's 2020 collection of 17 shorts, all made under quarantine conditions. Maggie's film, The Lost Daughter, was adapted from Elena Ferrante's 2006 novel by the same name. For those of you unfamiliar with Ferrante and her work, she's an Italian author who has been publishing under the pen name Elena Ferrante since 1992. Since then, Ferrante has gained international recognition and accolades, even earning herself a spot on Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2016. However, despite her popularity, Ferrante has managed to keep her identity a secret, a characteristic that has led to much intrigue and speculation from her readers over the years. When Maggie first came across the novel, she was stunned by Ferrante's ability to write honestly about challenging subjects and feelings. We'll start things off by hearing about that experience. I had been reading Ferrante, and I had been feeling in this kind of like a shocking way, like she was saying things out loud that nobody was talking about. Yes, about motherhood, but also about just generally being a woman in the world, sexually, intellectually, artistically. And so many fantasies of the way that we're, we, we, you know, we're depicted around ourselves all the time. Oh, this is how women feel about sex. This is how women feel about their work. This is how women feel in relation to motherhood. These are like the images we're seeing of ourselves offered to us. And they don't feel quite right. You're like, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me because that's not exactly how I feel about any of these things. Whereas Ferrante, I would read her and it really would take my breath away. Like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that out loud. Mm -hmm. The feeling of reading Ferrante for me was like, oh my God, this woman, this book is so fucked up. And then like a millisecond later, oh no, I really relate to her. <laughs> and so then what? Am I so fucked up? Or is this some kind of communal experience that many, many people have that we aren't talking about? And then I thought, what if instead of having that feeling alone with a book in your room, what if you had it in a movie theater full of people where you're sitting next to another woman you don't know having that feeling, mm -hmm. or your husband, or your mom, or your daughter. Mm -hmm. What a kind of 
what a kind of thrilling, radical thing to try to create. Once Maggie decided she wanted to adapt the novel, the next step was reaching out to Ferrante herself. I had to get the rights. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to her and took me. Her, her publisher was very encouraging. She, her, the only people who know who she is are these two people, husband and wife, who run this publishing house. And we reached out to them and they said, we think that they thought that she and I would make a good team, <laughs> which was already like enough for me in yeah. a way. So I spent a long time writing this letter to her to appeal for the rights. And she gave them to me. I asked her for the rights to adapt it and also to direct it. And she said, in response to my letter, she said, yes, but this contract is void if you don't direct it. Maggie didn't write the screenplay with any lead actor in mind, choosing instead to create a unique version of Leda that existed only in her imagination. However, when it came time to consider actors, she knew that Leda's casting could make or break the film. I thought, okay, this woman does these things that are really aberrant, like totally outside of what we consider acceptable. And then also she can be, well, there are times in which it's tough to be with her. And so I wanted to make sure, two things, I wanted to make sure I had an actress who was a little bit funny, like had a warmth to her, Mm -hmm. had a beating heart inside her. The other thing I needed, I knew for sure, was an actress who was sane, who was not crazy. Because, and I mean, whatever, we're all a little crazy, of course. And and even some of the point of the movie is that we all feel sometimes like we're losing our minds. But if Leda is crazy and she does the things she does, then... I don't understand why to make the movie, really. Because the point, one of the points is to say, okay, like, this is very, very difficult, but oh my God, I do relate to it. And so if she's crazy, we can indict her, we can judge her. And of course, we're going to try to do that anyway. Keep it away from us. But Mm -hmm. ideally, it's going to become impossible to keep it away from us. So that was, so then of course, I just was like, who who are the handful of brilliant actresses, you know? And I, and I wanted Olivia. I almost never know what the director of any job is going to be like. You don't know until you're actually there. You can ask people, but you just might have a... You might not have the connection between you as people, you know? So it was always a bit of a gamble. We sort of, like, met for lunch, and we were both very nervous. I was very nervous. She says she was, too. And we were kind of having this really awkward conversation, and then we just started drinking. We totally relaxed. We talked about everything. I just really liked her. We got on really well. She is much more intellectual than me. We have the Mm -hmm. same guttural feeling towards things, but she can also talk about it much more Mm -hmm. eloquently. And she gave me sort of literary references, and I'm much more Jilly Cooper. I don't don't really know what you're saying. But um, we totally understood each other in a different... Just that lunch together, and you're looking into her eyes, you know, her bright blue eyes, and you go, yeah, this is... Yeah, totally, I, I... I'm not very eloquent, <laughs> but I, I know what you're saying and what you're feeling. We feel the same. My, my lovely agents, say, they say the litmus test is, can you picture someone else doing that part? And if, if you go, oh, God, no, I, 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 no, absolutely, I won't let someone else do it. I have mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. That's the, if you go, yeah, I think they probably do it much better than me, then maybe you have to move on. It. Yeah. yeah. And this one, I, I would have thought, you know, mm-hmm. to, I want to do it. I was so lucky that she responded to it. And at the same time, maybe I guess I felt, again, kind of across the universe, like, I wonder if this might speak to you. You know, Mm -hmm. she didn't, I didn't know her, Mm -hmm. but 
It did. It always starts with a script for me. And it was so beautifully written. And, and the part is something I hadn't, hadn't played that character before. I do like to try and do something different each time. Invariably, after one job, suddenly you'll get sort of a swathe of just, uh, offers or, or no scripts coming through, which are kind of the same. You go, mm-hmm. well, I've done that bit. And mm-hmm. I'd quite like to do something else. And this was completely different and incredibly honest. And I was excited about the journey. And I'm talking about who else is going to come on board. It was all very exciting. For Dakota Johnson, who plays Nina, it was the unapologetic nature of Maggie's script and the nuances of Nina's character that drew her to the project. There was something about the raw honesty in the script that made me feel uncomfortable and, like, seduced. And there was something about Nina that she could have been so two-dimensional. She could have just been like the hot girl on the beach. But she's a woman who is hungry and invisible. Mm -hmm. And that is devastating. That is like so many women I know. It's I've felt that at times in my life where you're just like, I want more for my brain. I want to like chew on things and I can't and I and I'm not seen and nobody actually sees the heart that I have or the mind that I have and that's Nina and then also having this child who is demanding more than I think she understands that she can give this was tough for me because I'm not a mother but mm-hmm. I grew up with so many siblings and mm-hmm. so many of my friends have babies and mm-hmm. And I see them at times just be like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know. And when I met with her, I loved the script so much. I hadn't read the novel. And when I met with Maggie, I and I mean, there was quite a process of like me getting that job. But when we started working together on it, I asked if I should read the novel. And she was like, no, maybe don't. And that whole her whole journey of making this and adapting it and then working with me it was so saturated among the other key cast members that Maggie brought onto the film were Jesse Buckley, Paul Mescal, Dagmara Dominchik, Oliver Jackson Cohen, and Maggie's husband and her favorite actor Peter Sarsgaard. Maggie also reached out to Ed Harris about playing the role of Lyle the soft-spoken caretaker at Leda's vacation rental. I've always had a lot of respect for Maggie, just, you know, not not just her work, but how she handles herself, you know. I actually worked with her long at the Sundance Film Lab before she was really, really got going. I was an advisor, and she was working on one of the scenes that they were working on, and I remember her from that. And then I also worked with her dad on an HBO thing with Dennis Hopper, a Pete Dexter novel, Anyway, yeah, and, you know, she sent me the script, and I, to tell you the truth, I didn't quite get it, you know. I wasn't too thrilled about it. Amy, my wife, read it, and she said, Ed, this is a really great script. <laughs> and so I, I, I tend to listen to my wife's opinion about certain things, and I, I reread it with a different, whole different kind of point of view, you know, and I, I realized, yeah, she, this is, really captures this woman, this mother, in such a great way. 
The film was originally set to be shot in New Jersey in early 2020. But once the pandemic hit, it seemed increasingly unrealistic to be able to carry out a COVID-safe shoot on the East Coast. Maggie and her team quickly recalibrated, choosing to film instead on the Greek island of Spetsis close to Athens. One other thing about Dakota is we um, we shot all of her first stuff was all the stuff where Nina is being watched. I didn't work in a very intellectual way, but one kind of intellectual thing I wanted to experiment with trying was because she's being watched and she's so gorgeous. What if we play with the kind of tropes of that kind of objectification. And then the shock is that here comes this woman who we've just been like, oh my God, she's so gorgeous. She's so interesting. She's so compelling from afar. And she comes and she opens her mouth <laughs> and she's starving and she has huge needs. Mm-hmm. And and she now all of a sudden is a human being. Mm-hmm. Like I was just really interested to see what would happen. And so for, for Dakota, she started with all her scenes where she's just being objectified. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really painful for her. I think I am maybe a little bit like Nina, even like I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. I need more. And I think Maggie also works a little bit almost in like the 5D. She's like some of the notes that she would give. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like really, really deep, really like abstract. And I just go with it and mm-hmm. take it and And it was, yeah, I think I feel like I also in my own womanhood and in my own artistry, I'm just, I want to unfold. I want to keep finding all the women that are in me. She basically came to me and said, she didn't say it in these words, but this is how I think of it. She was basically like, I want to go scuba diving. Like, I want to go down to the bottom. (laughs) And I was like... Yeah, let's go. (laughs) She was like, I came here to open my mouth, Mm -hmm. to open my heart. Mm -hmm. And so the scene where she first does, where she comes over, and again, I won't give anything away, but it's that scene where she has that lovely part where she says, I I like your bathing suit Mm -hmm. to Olivia, which of course means... I love you, you know, yeah. or something else like like that. We shot, I shot so much because it was finally Dakota getting to open her mouth mm-hmm. as Nina and express herself. For the remainder of the film, Maggie continued to lean into her core belief that a supportive, loving, on-set environment would create a space where both cast and crew could do their best work. She was wonderful, you know. Yeah. She kept a real even keel. Didn't get excited about anything other than good work. She offers questions, thoughts that are very helpful to me as an actor. And she's just a lovely individual, you know. And and the crew really respected her. And she, you know, had a really good crew, worked real hard. And it it was very smooth in a way. I've worked on a lot of movies, like I said, as an actress. I've worked with directors who were full of love and interest in seeing me and I've worked with with directors who are brutal and I know that there are some people who believe that brutality or withholding creates interesting work but I'm not one of those people I hired people in every department and all of my actors who I had a huge amount of respect for and then I put so much of my focus toward seeing them and interacting with them and and actually loving them. And I do love them. 
um, it doesn't work if you fake it. It's like mm-hmm. the same with a boyfriend, you know, <laughs> or like it's like it, it only works if it's real. But if it is real and you're really seeing somebody, you know, and loving them too, I think then you get to see this incredible thing um, of people changing and growing on camera or mm-hmm. at work. She was so good at playing and seeing what happened in the moment and I would whisper things in your ear that you went, oh, that's going in a different tangent, which she might not use, but she just really enjoyed, mm-hmm. you know, playing with it. I can't even start with the amount of things I've learned from her, but this bravery and this fearlessness to just be so solid, to not have to react and to try things to mm-hmm. like, you know, there were some some takes that we did with the little girl, Athena, that were really, really gnarly. Mm-hmm. And I was horrible. Mm-hmm. And then we'd go the total opposite direction and it was beautiful and really sweet. And that is life. That's like the truth. It's not like, let's keep it safe while we're making this. No, let's keep it wild. Mm-hmm. And like everyone feel comfortable on, in the grand scheme of things, everyone's safe. So relax. And then within the scenes, go nuts. There was one scene in particular that required both Ed Harris and Olivia Coleman to access their wild side and completely let loose. And one of the fun things was when I had to do, when I was told I had to do, had to dance. I was going to ask you. <laughs> That's a great scene. I got these, I was like, oh God. So I got these, I got the Aerop- AirPods, which I had, didn't have. And I just started playing music, and then we were, we were quarantining for two weeks on a house on Spetsas Island, right on the sea, and it was a big patio, and I just put these in. I just danced around for 45 minutes, just staying loose and feeling free, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I knew I had to dance to the, you know, Bon Jovi tune. Yeah. <laughs> so I would I'd listen to that, but I just started listening to a bunch of other stuff that had good rhythm to it, you know, talking heads and... Yeah. Um, I'd start out with a little Neil Young, a little softer, and I'd get more and more, you know, mm-hmm. Dixie Chicks. Yeah, I get, you know, I have a limited <laughs> number of tunes on my phone, but I got enough that's got rhythm to it that, you know, gets you going. Oh, and the Pogues, man. There's a bunch oh, of great Pogues songs. <laughs> that's great. It was a great scene, and Olivia was, she's, I imagine, was an amazing dance partner. You guys must have yeah, got it was a lot pretty, of Yeah, it was pretty fun. And he was just so up for, up for everything, and... Doing that dance was hilarious. He mm-hmm. was he was having a lovely time, and he laughs a lot. You know, it was just it was lovely, easy. You don't want to do that sort of scene with someone who's too serious about it. And he mm-hmm. was just up for a good time. Mm-hmm. And we we da- we danced to that particular song over and over and over again. And because I was a, a little make it let yourself go, which I find quite hard. Um, I don't mind letting myself go emotionally, snot crying, everything, but. Dancing or trying to look seductive is something that I absolutely would rather put shit in my eye than have to try and do that. And so Maggie was, okay, again, just really, oh God, okay, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just, he was just, it's us, it's just us dancing. And he made it so easy. It was really fun. She's such a wonderful actress, you know, and and she's also really such a pleasure to be around. You know, mm-hmm. she really, as 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 focused as she is and as relaxed as she is and serious about her work 
she's also just very comfortable with herself, who she is, and she's a pleasure to be around, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just fun to work with somebody who's, you know, who you can just play with. It was so exciting to meet him, and it's, it's often the way, you know, when you meet someone that you've watched for years, and then you meet them and go, oh, you're lovely. You're obviously a human being, you know. Um, and then within seconds, you're just having a chat with someone really nice. And, I mean, looking into Ed Harris's blue eyes, you know, ah, you sort of forget your train of thought. While Olivia's character shares many important on-screen moments with both Ed and Dakota, another key dynamic in the film is between Olivia's character, Leda, and Jesse Buckley, who plays Leda's younger self. Appearing in separate scenes and timelines, both versions of Leda are essential in creating a complex, layered, central character. I recommended Jessie to, to Maggie, which I'm thrilled about. Yeah. And then she watched Wild Rose, which was released, mm. I think, shortly after we had our little first meeting. Jessie is, I think, one of the most extraordinary actresses I've ever watched. I love watching her. And she's lovely, and she's got so, so much talent. It's mm-hmm. really slightly galling. There was a scene that Jessie did in particular when she's lying in bed, post-coital, talking to her children... And she says, oh, I hate talking to my kids on the phone. And we all hear one, one meaning of that. And then she looks, and it's so close on her face, I hate talking to my kids on the phone. And you go, oh, she genuinely, oh. And there was little moments like that. She had two meanings in the way she said it, or we suddenly understood the real way that she meant. There's so many little moments like that, which is just great and honest. Those flashback scenes was so seamless, and you understood exactly what was going on. They're like, oh, that's what's happening. Oh, my God. And you see it playing out, and she was mirroring. Although they physically don't look alike, I felt like I was watching the same person. It was super clear to me that this was the same person. And It's so wild that that works, because, and I think part of the reason it works, you know, basically, Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman, two grown, full women, total artistic powerhouses on their own, we're asking the audience to believe that they're the same person, which I think is such an interesting ask because of course they're not the same person. Mm -hmm. We know they're not the same person. You're watching a movie. It's the same thing as Tony Kushner, you know, in the beginning of Angels in America. Mm -hmm. He says in the foreword, he says, let the wires show when the angel flies down or, you know, and, and when I saw Angels in America when I was 14 in New York, all the actors in their outfits just come out and move the tables. You know, they're sort of going like, we're not going to, I don't care if they're both a brown eyes or I even told Jesse, if you want to have bleach blonde hair, I don't mind. You don't have to look like her. We're just going to believe in our hearts that these women are having the same experience. And, and, and it's, I think it's really interesting that that works. Mm -hmm. You are clearly two different actresses, but you're not the same woman when you're 20 as when you're 30 as when you're 40, you go through changes, you you know, so it was perfectly all right that we were two different, different women, because ev- every human being is, is many different people and, you know, go through the changes in their lives. While Maggie's vast experience as an actress greatly influenced her directorial style and confidence on set, there were numerous challenges she had to contend with throughout the process. Because I'm, I'm an actress and I've been on many, many sets, the actual shooting of the movie in some ways felt like the least scary part because I have, I've done that. It didn't feel 
I mean, many things about it felt new, but um, many things didn't. And of course, if you are new at something, to be able to rely on experience um, is very helpful and very comforting. I would say during the shooting process, there was, I, I would say, time this thing of this like ticking clock of, you know, when you're writing, you take as much time as you need by yourself in your room. It doesn't quite work. You take a couple of days, you mull on it, you think, you know, but of course when you're shooting and it's a very small movie and of course we had, yeah, we had a short time. Um, that sometimes made me anxious, but mostly I would say when we were on the set, I was like in, I used to call it being like in the current, you could, I could hear the tone or the, the vibration kind of, of where the story needed to be told. And of course there were times when you're kind of feeling around in the dark for where that is. And then it just, it just clicks into gear and you're like, we're in the current, we're in, we're there. And so mostly when I was on set, I was listening for that tone. And so the things that were the scariest were more like irrational kinds of Mm -hmm. fear. Like, can I do this? You know, just fundamentally. Um, And I think that the antidote for that really is like one thing at a time, one small thing at a time. Can I take on directing an entire movie in this moment? No. But can I move through the scene and think it through? And yes, I can. Hats off to her, man. I'm mightily impressed with the mm-hmm. work she did. Mm-hmm. And all the actors, you know. Mm-hmm. She did, and she works with the actors really well because she, she knows what that's about, mm-hmm. you know. Maggie really, like, captures me all the time. She just gets my heart. And she's such a brilliant mind. Peter the other day said something about how Maggie has this ability to tell the real truth of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone says, oh yeah, this is happening, but like, what's really happening here? Mm-hmm. I do love acting, but I I think I realized that I've always kind of been a director secretly in my own mind and that I just didn't, I really didn't even allow myself, I didn't feel entitled to even consider that. And I do think that has something to do with the culture we live in, the world we live in. Like when I was young, there were a couple of incredible women making movies. Jane Campion is definitely one of them and someone who I continue to, I mean, have the hugest admiration for. But there weren't very many. And I think in some ways, if you were a storyteller, if you're like a lover of movies and you were a woman, uh, I'm sure this is not true for everyone. But for me, in some ways, I was like, I'm an actress. As soon as I allowed myself to imagine it, to consider it, I couldn't stop. But Maggie, there's something about being directed by someone who knows the feeling. It's mm. really nice. And you have to you have to trust them and you have to feel supported and loved and then you can you've got the courage to do anything and go anywhere. And she knows that feeling. Ferrante and Gyllenhaal, you know, have have made something really honest is the best word I can think of for it. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to go, oh, God, I felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and it hasn't been said out loud before. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining me. The Lost Daughter is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. 
Join me next time for more conversations here at Present Company.